That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I assure you that today's doctors are more ethical than their fathers or their grandfathers or their great-grandfathers. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, Michael Millinson, one of the original agitators of the status quo of healthcare. He's a friend, mentor, and someone I've constantly and consistently been referring to as the older, angrier, and more sagacious version of me. His activism over the course of the past 20 years has paved the way for advocates like me to grow our bully pulpits, and his book, Demanding Medical Excellence, is a template for what should be happening with our healthcare system, but is regrettably not. As a journalist, he's covered health reform and is particularly incendiary against hospital systems who place profit over purpose and who have to be too often incentivized to do the right thing. You're going to love this conversation. Enjoy my chat with Michael Millinson. You know, I want to talk about how you're like the angrier older me and, and how does that work? And, and <laughs> we could start with that. You know, I had I had a great compliment this week. Uh, speaking of that is that I was talking to a potential client in one of the patient safety, you know, infection control realm. And of course, I started uh, being rather passionate and later, this uh, young nurse uh, who was on there in her 30s wrote me and said, I want to be you when I grow up. Yeah, that I mean, honestly, you, you've been such a pioneer of your activism. You know, you, you have been agitating against the status quo. You've been doing what you're doing for way more than 20 years. I'm barely in this 15. Like, I'm a, I'm a sophomore when you're like a postgraduate student. I have to tell you, I hate talking about patient safety. I truly hate it. It makes me upset. It makes me feel moral distress. But the moral distress is because the physician community ignores the problem and the patient activists spend all their time working within the system. God bless them. And rather than people saying right out loud who have the standing, people who've been hurt say, look, you are not trying to prevent people from being hurt. Um, it just becomes sort of uh, coded in bureaucracy and in euphemism. But why did that become the hill to die on for you? There are so many things to be angry about and want to rally against. Where did that become the one thing you're pinning on the wall? So when I went from journalism to writing a book, I had been writing about healthcare for over a decade and thought I knew what I was doing and knew all about doctors. And I was going to write a book talking about all the wonderful things doctors and hospitals were doing, using computers and using all sorts of other kinds of things, information to make care better and safer. 
And the first hospital that I went to, now that I'm a researcher and not a reporter and people actually talk to me, the physician who was the head of infectious disease talked about a way that they had found to reduce surgical infections by giving people an antibiotic before surgery. And he told me about how a senior official of the hospital came to him and said, that's great, but you have totally screwed up our bottom line because those antibiotics we give people after surgery when they have an infection and all the other things, we have a very high markup on, and now we don't do them anymore, and our budget is shot all to hell. Thank you very much. And over the course of many years, I have seen this kind of confrontation play out again and again and again. And these are nonprofit hospitals. These are university-affiliated hospitals. I had a woman say to me early on in my book that she had lied to her superiors and told them the Medicaid program was requiring software to prevent drug interactions that were hurting people. And they didn't require it at all, but that was the only way to get them to buy adverse drug reaction software. And so what frustrates me is that this kind of conduct People who are our friends, our relatives, people we admire, who don't really mean to hurt anybody, but this is what they do, is not known to the public and persists and persists and persists, and people who are hurt and die. And I felt very disillusioned and appalled by this. And it persists. And it causes me that new term that doctors like to use when an insurance company or a drug company or a hospital administration does something wrong. It causes me moral distress. It causes me deep moral distress. <laughs> There's our jargon term. I'm going to hit the jargon button. Right. And it causes me moral distress that the people who I admire who are physicians who see this, who know about this, don't write about it. They talk about it privately because they are in a hierarchical situation where doing so would hurt their careers or hurt their jobs or whatever. And so even though everyone knows that this is happening, hardly anyone, particularly the people who could stop it, talk about it publicly. And that causes me a lot of anguish because people die. I just, I'm trying to write now about infection control post-COVID. And I came across an article, not in a healthcare publication, from Princeton. And what are these mathematicians from Princeton trying to do in an article in the Journal of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science? What are they writing about? They're writing about a mathematical model they've tried to develop to incentivize hospitals to combat infections that they cause to their patients. Wait, let me stop you. Why would they need to be incentivized to do that? Shouldn't they be doing that anyway? That's what causes me the moral distress. Okay, there That's you go. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Why should they be incentivized? And so you have articles that appear in the literature with titles for hospital ministers like, Does Patient Safety Pay? And now, you know what? We've done the calculations, economists, and we think for some infections, it pays to prevent them. We have articles that appear that say you have to make a business case for infection prevention. We have articles that appear that say your business case for infection prevention is partly dependent upon the fact that if someone is not in one of the hospital beds with an infection, that hospital bed could be used more profitably by another patient because you're not paid as much for the infection as you are by someone else. Leaving aside, well, if the bed is empty anyway, what does that mean? This is all about profit. It's all about profit, and it's from nonprofits 
and it's from well-respected hospitals, and it's from academic hospitals. And you know what? I completely agree that without a margin, there is no mission. But really, these are not super expensive kinds of things. And these are not hospitals that are safety net places that are, that are waiting for their last nickel to arrive six months late from the Medicaid program. That's not what's involved here. It's a total lack of perspective. It's a lack of, a lack of accountability by good people who have just lost their way. And the people who could call attention to this don't. Now, if I told you I discovered an article that was written to show how a for-profit hospital company could maximize its profits by not doing infection control, or an insurance company did it, that would be news, and that would be something all over the place, right? But these, these things are out in the, in the open, and, and nobody writes about it. And it just, it just causes me a lot of distress, and I feel that if nobody else is going to write about it, if nobody else is going to call it to the attention of someone somewhere, sometime, then I will. And hopefully at some point it has an impact. Back with our guest after the break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I'm always of the ilk that who profits the most from something happening that should be happening. The mire of clinical trials as a jargon term and a practical term and why you're only X percent enrolling and blah, 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 the cholesterol and the artery of access to a trial. You know, the question then becomes, wouldn't it be in the profitable interests of the companies making the trials to guarantee every patient eligible gets there? Yes, but why aren't we identifying not just who stands to profit, but what do we do to make the system work so they can profit? Because if they do profit, it does it mean more patients get on the right drugs? So we're switching to what the drug companies do in research, which is an important topic, but a different topic. Before they leave the hospitals, they are good people trying to do the right thing who often willfully put on blinders. When it comes to clinical trials, that's a whole different issue because clinical trials there's a, there's a great deal of evidence that shows that there is corruption in clinical trials in the sense that people 
do data dredging to try to show the best results. People sometimes don't design them well. The amount of money at stake with clinical trials is huge. The amount of money at stake in any individual hospital for whether you hire a couple of people or whatever is relatively minor, even though people tend to focus on it. The amount of money at stake on a new drug is millions and millions and maybe billions of dollars. And so you end up with profit-minded people trying to maximize profits. Right, they're not nonprofit. The drug companies are not nonprofits. Uh, hospitals, many of them are, and so the issue with drug trials is the system is arcane. Uh, we need new drugs. Uh, we need patients to enroll in trials, but the academics and the drug companies and everybody else are all intertwined in this odd dance that really is not necessarily as patient centered as as it should be. The good news is that there's been a lot more pressure from patient groups in just the last few years to be more open, to be more transparent, to be more patient-centered, to look at patients as something other than objects to be processed through a drug trial. So I'm quasi-optimistic that drug trials are getting more humanistic, more human-centered, but it's a small drop in the bucket compared to the larger picture. I mean, I'm still stuck on the whole hospitals have to be incentivized to do the right thing for patients. And it kind of flies in the face of, you know, playing Pollyanna here, a little Hippocrates is not actually doing his job. <laughs> and I, the reason I brought up the trial thing is like, shouldn't hospitals be incentivized to do the right thing? Or shouldn't they, I would say they shouldn't need to, but in a private sector health system or a nonprofit health system, yes, we know there are, there's so much cholesterol in that artery. Have you seen in 20 plus years of this railing against the system for all the right reasons, have you seen any examples of change and doing the right thing? Yes, but first I want to tell you an old joke you reminded me of, of uh, that I hear from my parents about uh, uh, the little boy whose parents told him that uh, they want him to be good. And he said, I'll be good if you give me uh, an extra quarter of my allowance. And his father was very indignant and said, I want you to be good for nothing. <laughs> well played. So, uh, yeah. Should those hospital systems be good for nothing? Yes. Uh, should there be a balance uh, with the right, right incentives? Yes. Have things changed? Well, yes, things have changed because the incentives are changing because we're now going to pay them for value. So now, instead of me being paid every time you come to the office, maybe I get paid for lowering your cholesterol. So all of a sudden, I'm prevention-minded. And part of the other thing that's happened is there's more regulations and more transparency and more measurements and all the rest. So yeah, the healthcare system is changing because the incentives have changed. But that is why it is changing, not because all of a sudden a great enlightenment happened. And once people get used to the change, that will be how we do things, right? And so the other thing that gets in the way with the healthcare system is the myth that our forefathers, the doctors who trained us were, were great, noble people who were never influenced by profit. 
and uh, it's the evil insurers and, and, and everybody else who's changing it. And, and this is what radicalized me also. I wrote about this in my book. I went back to the original sources. For all that I rail against the system, I assure you that today's doctors are more ethical than their fathers or their grandfathers or their great-grandfathers, the people coming out of school today. The only difference is, is that they're not taught what medicine was really like in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s. When you have a doctor who is in his 60s and remembering his youth with the haze of nostalgia, everyone was a giant, everything was great. And it just isn't true. Uh, there is much more of a control today on unethical practices, on fee-for-servant profiteering than there ever was. Are there different problems? Yes. Are there other problems that are ethical because of the insurance companies and because of the hospitals? Absolutely. But to take a look backwards and say that when doctors had unfettered autonomy, everything was ethical is simply untrue because, in fact, no senior doctor ever took a junior doctor aside and said, let me tell you about how much money I'm making by doing unnecessary procedures. Or let me tell you about how people die because we really don't care about safety here. That's not what happened. But that is what happened when you really look at it. There is a, uh, a feature in a medical journal when the quality movement was still getting underway in the 90s and uh, after the early 2000s, where a quality researcher wrote a column about heroes and martyrs of quality. And I don't think they teach about the martyrs in medical school. I don't think they teach about the guys who recommended that evidence-based medicine be practiced and saw the referrals dry up and uh, their colleagues shun them. And, you know, that doesn't mean doctors are worse than anyone else. What it means is that doctors are no better than anyone else. And I found that quite disappointing when I first uh, came into uh, the healthcare culture. And later, I saw it simply as something that you have to accept, even if doctors in their medical journals always tell themselves that they're noble. Uh, and I don't want to generalize. Obviously, there are a lot of doctors I incredibly admire who I never knew existed, the people who fight this system, the people who do all the right things, the people who have made healthcare better and don't get recognized. There are people who have made their hospitals and healthcare systems incredibly better, but because it doesn't fit the narrative of, oh, look, I discovered a cure for cancer or a new antibiotic or something, nobody knows about them. The public doesn't know about the deaths avoided. It's kind of like masks, right? Uh, Dr. Fauci is talking about all the people we didn't kill because we wore masks, but nobody can see them. These heroes of healthcare quality, these physicians and nurses who are the heroes of healthcare quality, have saved thousands and tens of thousands, a hundred thousands of lives, but nobody knows that they weren't the victim of a medical error as a result of what these people did. Well, it also goes back to the prevention conundrum in the sense of like, we went so far on purpose, because, you know, uh, science is all about preventing risk to the best of our objective abilities. I say, quote, only 26,000 people in New York died with whatever. But, you know, if we hadn't done that, it would have been well into six figures. And like, well, that was for nothing. But you can't put the, you know, the slinky back in the thing, because like, you're already past the point of perception. And I'm devastated at what's happening in this country. I'm all for objective understanding. I had asymptomatic COVID. I tested positive twice for antibody, so I ruled out all the false tests. And I know lots of people, they're doctors, and I can, like, how is this a thing? It bothers me on a couple of levels, if we're going to dove into to COVID and hospitalizations, that the infection rates 
are not necessarily being explained on, I use the term like COVIDity. I made up the word, like how much COVID do you have to be in the hospital? Are you COVID, you know, 10 to just go in there for a day? Are you COVID 100 to go in there for a week? Are you COVID 1,000 to go in there and die? Like where's the sliding scale on how bad it is when you're diagnosed? Or if all the people that are now, you know, going back to the hospital who couldn't get the electives or the other surgeries or the other procedures, they're just getting tested by default now because the hospitals have a captive audience. Do those count? So where do you see the misinformation on on masks and public awareness and this this prevention paradox factoring into the data hospitals are providing? When the president of the United States repeatedly spreads inaccurate information that contradicts the scientists in his own administration for a combination of selfish motives and plain ignorance. And when people don't speak up against it, including, by the way, in Congress, there's a GOP doctor's caucus, right? They could speak up and say, we love you, Mr. President. But in this case, you know, you're off base. That starts to persuade people who understandably don't like to wear masks and the like not to wear them. And if individual hospitals don't see themselves as being part of a, a unified national effort, it's tough. You know, we as human beings are often willing to do a lot of things for a cause. I mean, the way people at all sorts of hospitals, the way doctors and nurses and the people who collected the trash and everybody at hospitals responded to this crisis truly makes them heroes. I'm full of admiration. But when we don't see a crisis, we all fall back, all of us, into our usual habits. And if we tell people that the crisis is over, or if we politicize it, as, as this administration has done, then people's behavior changes. And it is, it is truly a sad thing uh, because people will die. And, and again, it would have been nice if, say, Rand Paul, who survived COVID, spoke up or others spoke up. And, and that's a complicated question. But it's a shame that we as a society had so few moments of unity. I'm going to agree. I mean, we're coming up on time soon, but I did want to talk about your book, Demanding Medical Excellence, because it stood the test of time. And evidence to the obvious, yeah, there's still a need to demand medical excellence. And the fact that this is still going on, and how are you the only one calling this out? Or are there other Michael Millensons out there calling this out? And what does change really look like? Can you sum up really quickly, like you wrote the book for a reason, the book stands the test of time. What are you hoping, you know, pipe dream, Snap your fingers and something happens. Is there one cog that starts the whole clock spinning? There's two things that need to happen. I don't know when they will. One is very simple. There's a lot of unknowns in medicine. Great. All I'm asking is that we provide the best possible and the safest possible care that we know how to do. Implement everything we already know works to make care as safe as possible and implement everything we already know is correct to make care as evidence-based and as high quality as possible. Those are the two things for safety and quality. And then since then, I've focused more on patient-centered care, and it's very simple. Treat patients as partners. Now, if they're partners, sometimes they may turn to you and say, you know what, doc? I have no idea what to do. I'm scared and I'm sick. Go ahead, make the decision. I'll go with you. And sometimes they may say, you know what? 
I know more about my body than you do, or I know more about my risk factors than you do. And with all due respect, doc, here's what I'd like to do in this situation. That's a true partnership. Sometimes you say, yes, dear. And sometimes you don't. And those are the two things. Cut away all the excuses. There is no excuse for our healthcare system, which prides itself on being science-based, not following the evidence and giving people the safest and highest quality care possible consistently all the time. It is not an economic issue. It is a cultural issue. And the patient-centeredness is even more difficult culturally, but that's really where we have to go. And we are going there, but we are going there slowly in fits and starts because we are bound by myths of the difference between holding physicians accountable and giving them autonomy. What's the right balance? And we're bound by myths. And we're bound by myths about what patients are capable of. And it's not because anyone is venal, but it is because they refuse to look at some uncomfortable facts and change their behavior. Michael Middleton is my favorite status quo agitator. He's a writer, author of Demanding Medical Excellence, speaker, consultant, researcher, activist, and as I said at the top of the show, the angrier, better, older me, I see you as a role model and a mentor, and thank you for staying angry for all the right reasons, and we'll definitely have you back on the show very, very soon. There's an unlimited supply of stuff to rant about. Thank you. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.